Our scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 6, verses 14 through 20. The word of God speaks to us like this. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had been become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. This is the very word of God to us. Be to God. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bryce Johnson. I am a pastoral resident here at Frontline uh, Church, specifically Frontline Yukon. Um, if you haven't had a chance to meet, love to get to meet you, get to, get to know you, know your story, uh, buy a cup of coffee. And so please uh, come introduce yourself after service. Um, and we're so glad you guys are here. We're, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we get to just really interesting, uh, kind of strange stories. Before we get into it, um, speaking back this week, uh, and 15 years ago, there was uh, really this, this TV show that, that became like a cultural phenomenon. It, it took us all by storm. Uh, if you, uh, you might remember, the show called Lost. Uh, and so if, uh, I, I see some nodding heads and some eyes rolling, uh, Lost was this TV show um, that uh, for about four years, man, kept us on the edge of our seats. We were like, man, what is going on? It's really great. And then the fifth year, it got really weird. Uh, and then it just kind of ended and no one was happy. No one liked it. Uh, we were like, what, what's, what's really going on? But the premise of Lost was uh, you have this airplane that crashes on this island, and uh, a few folks end up surviving. And then they get up, and they're trying to figure out where they are, what's going on, uh, and, and, and you're trying to figure it along with, with them. You have no idea where they are, what's, what's, what's going on. Um, and the writers of the show, they, they implemented this really... Uh, interesting um, device where they would use flashbacks. Um, and, and so, so you cut back, you flash back, and uh, you would see something uh, in the character's life uh, and, and something about their story. And what it would do is it would actually help color and inform the storyline. Uh, and so you would you'd get to know the characters better, you get to know the story a little bit better. And so and all these questions like, hey, how did, how did this guy become so cynical? Or, or what's, what's, what's the story behind this gal? Or, or, or what in the world is the Dharma Initiative, right? You had all these questions, and the one person uh, remembers <laughs> lost. Uh, but you had all these, these questions, and these flashbacks kind of help provide some more context as to what was going on. And, and this morning, the, the passage that we get, that, that's sort of what's going on that we see in the text this morning. In the midst of uh, the narrative of Jesus' ministry, Mark provides this, this aside, this, this flashback, if you will, to show us, hey, what, whatever happened to John the Baptist? We, we last saw John the Baptist in 
the very first chapter, Mark 1, and we learn that he was arrested. And then we don't hear from him, we don't hear about him again until our passage this morning. Our passage this morning is a strange one. We only read about half of it, and so I'm, I'm going to provide the rest of it. Um, as Jesus is going around, there's, people are, are trying to talk about him, and there's all these rumors about who Jesus is, right? And, and some people are like, hey, he's, and he's this amazing prophet. And some folks are like, hey, I, I think he's Elijah. I, I, I think he's come back. And, and Herod hears these rumors, and Herod, Herod's conscience is pricked, and he says, I think this is John the Baptist back to life. Um, and, the real, and the reason we see this is because he's feeling guilty because he killed John the Baptist. And we find out how and why. John the Baptist, uh, if you remember your Sunday school stories, he, he's a man who lives out in the wilderness. He wears camel's hair. He eats uh, wild honey and locusts. Diet I've never tried. Um, but, but he goes out and he's preaching repentance. And then he, uh, when it comes to Herod and Herodias, he preaches because Herod has been having this uh, illegitimate relationship with his brother's wife. And what Herod ends up divorcing his wife, he marries his brother's wife, who also ends up happening to be his niece. And so there's some weird family dynamics going on. And John the Baptist says, hey, that's not okay. Uh, and so Herod uh, goes and bring, uh, imprisons him, puts, uh, puts him in prison, and Herodias is furious. Herodias is the, the sister-in-law, now queen, and she wants to kill him. But Herod's like, hey, I don't want to do this. This guy's a mighty man of God. Uh, and so he keeps him in prison, but, but he, he pulls him out every so often to listen to, to John preach and speak. And, and the text says uh, he didn't like what he said, but he kept listening to him. And then we get this story where Herod throws a birthday party for himself. And he invites all the city generals and, and all the leading men of the city and his military guys and just a bunch of dudes at this party. The wine is flowing freely. And he gets his, Herodias' daughter, his stepdaughter, to come out and dance for them. It's not, it's not ballet or the Macarena. You can, you, can, you can gasp at what's going on here. And Herodias is, uh, Herod is so pleased with it that he says, hey, Ask me whatever you want. I'll give it to you. Herodias' daughter goes to her mom, and she says, what should I ask for? And Herodias is quick with her answer. She says, ask for John's head. So Herodias' daughter goes up to Herod, and he says, I want John's head on a platter. And Herod comes to this moment where he's, he's, he, he's so worried because he doesn't want to kill John, but he's in front of all of his boys, and he's made this vow and he's got to save face. And so he sends the executioner out to chop off John's head, gets it on a platter, gives it to Herodias' daughter. She takes it to her mom. And that's the end of John's ministry. It says his disciples came and buried the headless body of John. What a... Man, who remembers that episode of Veggie Tales? Right? It, I, 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 it missed the editor's cut. You know, it, it, it feels more like an episode from an HBO series than a story from the Bible. It's a crazy story. And I've sat in this text for a long time this week trying to figure out what's going on. I've read a lot of commentaries, listened to a lot of sermons, trying to get to the bottom of it. And, and a lot of folks uh, 
are like, man, we don't know what to do with this. Or they take it so many various ways. And, and so you get a lot of moral uh, sermons on morality, like, hey, here's why we shouldn't make rash vows, or these are the dangers of uh, lust and sex, or, or, hey, this is the cost of following Jesus. And while I think all of those are true and right things, I don't think that's what Martha's doing here. When, when we look at a text, we want to we see not just, hey, what's the moral of the story, but what is the author and the Holy Spirit through the author trying to convey and trying to get across? Now, what's interesting is last week, we talked about how Jesus was um, rejected in his hometown. And despite the fact of being rejected, he sends his own disciples in pairs to go out and uh, proclaim repentance. And they do. They preach and they perform miracles. And here's where we ended last week. Mark 6, verse 12 and 13 says, So they, being the disciples, went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And then we get to our passage this morning, and it can feel like a jarring uh, shifting of scenes, right? Uh, but the very next verse after this passage is this, Mark 6.30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. So, so what's, what's going on? Jesus sends out his disciples, we get this crazy story about John uh, being beheaded by Herod, and then it says, and then the disciples return back to report to Jesus. And what Mark is doing is he's giving us a snapshot of what Herod is thinking and a flashback about how Herod killed John the Baptist. And what we're really seeing here, scholars call it a Markin sandwich, which reminds me that lunch is just around the corner. What we're seeing here is a clash of two kingdoms. Now, what has Jesus been doing thus far? It's really easy just to be kind of going through week after week and listening to these sermons and, and just kind of forget what Jesus has been doing. So, so let me, let's backtrack and, and look at uh, Mark 1, verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, so this is John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He's been proclaiming the gospel of, of, of the kingdom of God. He, Jesus is not just some magician or some sage walking around offering wise, pithy statements and, 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 and healing people. What he's doing is he's proclaiming and he's revealing a new kingdom, and it's called the kingdom of God, and it's breaking into the world. And so, so when he heals people, he's not, just, he's not just performing a trick. What he's doing is he's displaying the restorative power of the kingdom that restores and heals what's been broken. And when he, when he teaches, he's proclaiming the nature of this radically different kingdom. Scholars and theologians call it the upside-down kingdom. And, it, and it's called the upside-down kingdom because it's countercultural to every other kingdom, every other philosophy, every other ideology out there. It's a kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. It's a kingdom where leaders wash the feet of their servants. It's a kingdom where suffering leads to glory, where enemies are not retaliated against, but they're loved, and offenders are forgiven not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but 70 times seven. It's a kingdom where the marginalized and the outcasts are lifted up, and the humble and the proud and the self-righteous are brought down. It's an upside-down kingdom. And that's what Jesus has been doing so far 
And then we get to this passage this morning where we see another king. It's King Herod. And what we're going to see is when the kingdom of God comes, it's always going to clash with the kingdoms of the world. And as we see these two kingdoms collide, Mark is showing us the better way of the kingdom of God. Now, there's so much in the story that we can unpack and address. There's systemic injustice. There's sexual perversion. There's power dynamics. There's oppression. And there's so much there. But I think what the text would have us see and where we're going this morning is that the upside-down kingdom is a kingdom that's both attractive and offensive. It's a kingdom that's marked by weakness. And it's a kingdom with a better king. This upside-down kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming and has brought in, it's a kingdom that's both attractive and offensive. It's a kingdom marked by weakness, and it's a kingdom with a better king. And so, say with me, well, Mark chapter 6, verse 20 says this, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Now, Herod had arrested John because he didn't like the sexual ethic that John was proclaiming. John rebuked this unlawful marriage between Herod and Herodias. But what's interesting is that Herod kept listening to John. The text says that even after John was in prison, Herod would bring John out to listen to him. And, and, and he didn't like what John said, but he liked listening to John. See, there's something about John's preaching that, was, that attracted Herod, that, that, that was sweet to Herod's ear, and yet there was something about John's preaching that repulsed Herod. That's because the kingdom of God made demands on how to live. And Herod is experiencing what all of us will experience or find out about the gospel and the kingdom of God. It's attractive, but it's also offensive. It's a, because it's a kingdom of love and grace, but it's also a kingdom that demands repentance and obedience. It's a kingdom of inclusion and welcome, but it's also a kingdom of judgment on the unrepentant. See, Herod loved to hear the attractive parts of God's word, but he didn't want to obey the hard parts of God's word. And I wonder how many of us here can resonate with that. Maybe you're like me and you love listening to sermons, and so your podcast queue is lined up with the latest, greatest preacher, and you listen gladly, but... When it comes to repentance, when it comes to living it out and walking in obedience, you, you have a hard time. Maybe you love the sermon on God's grace and mercy, but when it comes to honoring God with your giving and with stewardship and living in such a way where money doesn't have a hold on your life, then you falter. Or you love what God's word has to say about righteousness and holy living, but when God's word calls you to embrace the foreigner and the refugee and with open hands and treat them as you would treat Jesus, then, then we want to caveat it. See, the gospel of the kingdom will press on all of us in areas that are uncomfortable. And the reason is because the gospel demands allegiance to an authority that, listen, is not us. We, we live in a culture and time where the highest value is individual autonomy. It's individual autonomy where you do what pleases you, what benefits you, what you think is right, and how dare someone tell you otherwise? How dare someone tell you, uh, how dare someone challenge how you live or disagree on your stance? And we have elevated autonomy as the highest good. And friends, Christianity 
will always press on this because individual autonomy and authority isn't the highest good in the kingdom of God. But we submit to a different authority that's outside of us, that's not a voting block, not a talking head, not an organization, but the creator of the cosmos. And the sobering reality is that he is all-knowing and all-wise and all-loving, and we are not. And so his ways will always rub on us and come into conflict with us because we are not God. One pastor says it this way. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. A God who looks like you, thinks like you, votes like you, acts like you, treats others the way you treat others because the true God isn't made in our image, we will always find something he says, something he demands difficult. Now, a gospel that's only attractive is not the kingdom of God. But a gospel that's only offensive is also not the kingdom. Herod loved listening to John's preaching, but he refused to change how he was living to obey God's word. So, friends, here's my question. How do we respond when scripture comes into conflict with us and how we think things ought to be? So the kingdom of God is both attractive and offensive. And one of the things that, that we tend to find frustrating and offensive about the kingdom of God is actually the second point, that it's a kingdom that's marked by weakness. A kingdom that's marked by weakness. Look at verse 17. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now the story of John being imprisoned and then beheaded just seems like a strange interjection, this, this depressing story into what feels like uh, an otherwise uh, happy one of the disciples going out and pushing back darkness. But what we're actually seeing here is a key feature to Christianity, and it's the way of the kingdom, what the nature of the kingdom is, and it's one that's marked by weakness. See, the kingdoms and governments of the world flexed by displays of power and coercion and, and authority. And, and it's what Herod does here. He uses his authority and his power to go and seize Herod uh, and to imprison him and to bring him out for his own pleasure and then to murder him. It's how the systems of the world operate. But the kingdom of the world does not deal with coercion or abuse of authority or an iron fist. The kingdom displays its power through vulnerability. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? It's, it's essentially a manifesto on this kingdom. And Jesus says some wild and crazy things in there. He says, hey, if you're attacked, turn the other cheek. He says, hey, if someone asks for your tunic, go ahead and give it to them. And while you're at it, give them your cloak as well. He says, hey, don't hate your enemies and retaliate, but love them and show them kindness. He says crazy things like the meek will inherit the earth and that when you are persecuted, you are blessed. The world sees that as weakness and Jesus tells us that's how his kingdom actually operates. That's normally. See, the kingdom of God is for those of us who recognize our own weakness. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning blessed are those who recognize their own spiritual poverty, who recognize their need and their own weakness because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's how we get this kingdom, by acknowledging our weakness. And we never move past that. 
When people say Christianity is for those who are weak, we say yes and amen. It is. And Jesus modeled this himself by dying in the most humiliating way of the time, state-sanctioned execution, death on a cross. And it looks like failure and weakness. It looks like the other kingdoms have won. It looks like Rome has won. It looks like uh, the Pharisees have won and the Sadducees have won, but only if you don't know what's going on. His weakness, his frailty, his broken body is what produced the fruit of forgiveness and redemption. And so that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that the crucified Christ is a stumbling block for the Jews because they couldn't understand how a crucified king could be a Messiah. And he says, and it's foolishness to the Greeks because how can weakness be power? But for those of us who are in Christ, it is the power of God. Our weakness displays a different strength and power because we display where our hope actually lies. Now, if that feels like foolishness, if that feels like silliness, if that feels like, man, that's just feel-good myth, maybe it's because we bought into the world's kingdoms and ideologies. Friends, listen, despite what news sources or polls would have you believe, despite what politicians may say, the gospel of Jesus doesn't falter or cower in the face of opposition. We don't clamor for power because the way of the kingdom looks like weakness. Even in the face of extreme persecution and opposition, the kingdom of God moves forward. Suffering and death do not deter it. If anything, it advances it. One church father said it this way, in the face of all, the, all this persecution, in the face of Christians dying day in and day out, he says the blood of the martyr is its seed for the church. The blood of the martyrs. Opposition does not hold it back. Weakness is where we display where our power is. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 11. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that, here, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. What this means is that we don't have to live in fear or worry about the state of things. The upside-down nature of the kingdom means that what looks like weakness is actually forming us into Christ-likeness and displaying the glory of Christ to the world. Listen, the way of the kingdom is not a strong fist. The way of the kingdom is a bent knee. So do you, do you feel weak and beat down? Friends, take heart. The life of Jesus is being manifest in you. Do you feel crushed and, and, and feel the weight and burden of life or following Jesus? Take heart, the kingdom is at work in you. If you're anything like me, it can be far too easy to wring our hands at the state of things and to bank our hope on policies and politicians and, and, and influencers 
and to worry when, 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 when other people seem to be flourishing or when other guys are in power. And, and listen, I'm, I'm not negating the fact that economic and social laws and policies have real impacts on people. They do. As Christians, we ought to strive for the flourishing society and all people working to reflect this kingdom to come. But we don't do it from a posture or place of fear or agitation or control. We do it in subversive ways, in countercultural ways, in seemingly weak ways. We reflect that our hope is not in, in this right here. Our hope is in a city to come. We reflect that our hope is in a better king. Which leads me to the last point, that this kingdom is led by a better king in Jesus. See, the whole gospel of Mark has been showing this better king Jesus as he announces the good news of his kingdom and he calls people to follow him, to believe him, to submit to him. And in this story right here, we see this clash of these two kingdoms and what we're really seeing is a tale of two kings. And what Mark is trying to do is contrast Herod with Jesus and he's pretty obvious where he believes uh, life is actually found. See, the story, Herod throws this extravagant hedonistic party for all his boys. And the very next passage, Jesus compassionately provides an extravagant and abundant feast for 5,000 people whom the Bible describes as sheep without a shepherd. It's the very next story. Herod bends to the whims and approval of so many folks, of, of his own desires, of Herodias, of Herodias' daughter, of his own uh, men that he's trying to save face with. And yet, even at the cost of his life, Jesus bends only to the approval of his Father in heaven. Herod locks up his opponents. You know what Jesus does? He sends good news to them, to those who oppose him, and then he ends up dying for his enemies so that they might become family. It's part of our assurance this morning. His enemies become family. See, Herod is petty and cowardly and selfish, and the question Mark seems to be posing for us this morning is, is this a worthy king? And that's the question before all of us today. Who are you going to serve? Will you serve a worthy king? Now, my guess is, is if you're in here and if you call yourself a Christian, you're nodding your head and you're saying, yeah, amen, Jesus is a better king. But as you look at your life, friends, this week as I looked on my life, there's so many other things that are occupying the throne of my heart. There are all sorts of things, all sorts of people, all sorts of ideas that are vying for our attention and our affection and our allegiance. All sorts of things promise the good life. They promise happiness. Listen, we have whole industries whose sole purpose is to convince us that they have the product that we've been waiting for our whole lives, and that product will change our lives. We look to relationships and sex and believe that they'll offer the love and the identity that we've always wanted. We look to marriage and to kids and believe that they'll actually bring us meaning, lasting meaning. We, we look to leaders and politicians and hope that they'll fix what's wrong and that they'll bring peace. We look to consumerism and stuff and accumulating more stuff to bring us joy and happiness. And we even look to religion and morality to bring us a sense of righteousness and purpose. 
they often abuse it, all false kings. The Bible would call them idols. They're good things in and of themselves, but they can't wait, bear the weight of our hopes and our dreams. And when good things become ultimate things, they become God things, they become idols. We even look to ourselves, don't we? Because we're told that, hey, if you follow your heart, if, you, if you're true to yourself, if you're true to who you really are, that's what's actually going to lead to the greatest life. But even we make terrible things. I mean, how many times have we deceived ourselves? How many times have we let ourselves down? How many times have we let others down? How many times have you changed your opinion this week? We falter and we, we shift from side to side. And friends, can I offer that? Listen, we're, I, I, I know many of you guys, we're great people, but we make terrible things. We're untrustworthy. But, but can I offer you that Jesus is truly trustworthy, that, that he actually won't let you down? That there's no deceit in him? No sniff of spiritual abuse, no selfishness, no hypocrisy, no pride? Maybe you're in here and, and you've been hurt or burned by people bearing the name of Jesus. Listen, it's real. And if that's true, I am so sorry. And I hate that. But can I offer that Jesus is a better king than his followers are? Listen, I, <laughs> I am going to let you down. I'm going to go ahead and say that. This, this leadership team, this church, is probably going to let you down. But the one who stepped down from heaven and put on flesh, I promise you, won't let you down. The God-man Jesus who poured out his life serving and caring for people, he is a better king. The suffering servant who willingly died on a cross for your sin and my sin, he let his own creation murder him using wood and nails that he created. He is a better king. Has your king ever died for you? The resurrected Savior who was raised from the dead and walked out of the tomb and ascended to heaven, he will not let you down. The risen and reigning king who is returning one day, not to take us up into heaven, but to bring heaven down to earth, will restore all broken things. That Jesus is worthy to follow and put your hope and trust in. I promise you, I promise you, that Jesus will never let you down. See, he offers an, ident an identity that cannot be shaken. His promises are abundant for life and joy in this kingdom. He secures a place for us in the God's family. His blood has made peace between people who should have no peace, and his kingdom is one of peace. In fact, this king gives us his own righteousness, and he makes beautiful things out of broken, busted things. Friends, do you know this Jesus? There's this question at the beginning of this passage where people are trying to figure out who this Jesus is. Right? There's, all, there's all sorts of ideas. Herod thought he was essentially a boogeyman, right? a, a, a spiritual zombie, the, the reincarnated spirit of the guy he murdered. Some other folks thought he was this really powerful, powerful prophet or someone of old. But John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John, say that John the Baptist is doing his baptism thing in the water, and he sees Jesus walking by one day, and he points and says, hey, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. John knew that Jesus was the resurrection and the life. And so when prison came, and when loneliness came, and when the executioner's acts came, he remained steadfast on that hope. Listen, if you're here and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus, would you turn to him this morning? His offer is for you today. Repent and believe this good news that Jesus is king and will bring his kingdom into your heart and into your life today. Would you believe it? Would you accept it? And if you're here and you found that other hopes have crawled into your heart and crowded your heart, would you turn to Jesus? His offer is for you today as well. For you and me, repent and believe this good news. Jesus is a better king than whatever we're hoping or placing our hope and trust in. And if you are in him, listen, there's no condemnation. There's life and life abundant. So what do we do? What do we do when this attractive kingdom also offends us and and, and we interact with the rug of the kingdom? What do we do when we actually walk in and experience this weakness, when we're walking through uh, the valley of the shadow of death, as it were? What do we do when it seems like Jesus isn't enough, that maybe he's not a good enough king? I want to end with uh, a scene that we see in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 6, Jesus is at uh, what most uh, theologians believe is it's just the height of his popularity. He's feeding folks. He's bringing healings. He's, uh, he's uh, uh, meeting people's needs. There's thousands upon thousands are following him. And then Jesus says one of the most offensive things you could say to a Jewish person. He says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have any part of me. He says, hey, remember, remember our ancestors, they got manna from heaven. God sent this bread from heaven to sustain them. Well, listen, I'm the true bread of heaven. I'm the better bread from heaven. And unless you partake of me, you're going to have no part of me. <laughs> John 6, verse 60 tells us the disciples' response. He says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who could listen to it? He said something that offended their religious sensibilities with their their own uh, worldview. And John tells us that from that point on, many people left him. They couldn't take it. The kingdom that was so attractive and proved to be, uh, actually proved to be offensive as well. This massive movement that had so much momentum, I mean, you had thousands and thousands following him, was whittled down to just a handful of disciples. His kingdom doesn't seem all that great anymore. It, it actually looks kind of weak. It looks like it's faltered. And then Jesus turns to his disciples after everyone else has left, and he asks them this poignant question. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Jesus asks, hey, are you, are you guys going to leave as well? Listen, I, I've said some hard things. What, what are you going to do? Our numbers have shrunk. Our following has fallen off. Listen, do you want to find someone else to follow? Do you want to find another king to submit to? 
Let me ask, how would you respond in that situation? Have you ever wondered, is it worth it? Is Christianity still worth it? Is this suffering still worth it? Is Jesus still worth it? Watch Peter's response. Peter, always the first one to respond, always the first to speak. Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says, Jesus, where else are we going to go? There's no one else. There's nothing else. No other system, no other leader, no other hope, no other personality, no other king. No one else has the words of eternal life. Friends, the heart of the kingdom is that phrase. You alone have the words of eternal life. My prayer is that we would embrace that this morning. And we believe that. Whatever you're walking through, Jesus has the words of life. Would you bow your heads with me?